It's very nice to be here. I always love coming to this holy place and to see. I see some familiar faces, so I don't know if you remember me or not, but I remember some of you. One of the things that was coming up very clear in my mind during the meditation was that there is nothing in this world to be upset about or to be worried about. Given what I just said about (laughs) the climate, the economy, the energy, you know, all of the issues and their magnitude and their complexity and their interrelatedness and, and the need for really changing direction and all of that, we can ask ourselves, how can you come to that conclusion? There's nothing, nothing that we need to be worried about. Everything's falling apart, and that's its nature. And I see smiles, and I, <laughs> and I know that you know that the way we come to really know that deep inside is through the practice of meditation and practicing virtue and practicing coming into contact and being present with what we take refuge in. So I know for me what I've experienced, Brigitte mentioned the times I've been to visit here as as an eight precept nun, as an Anagarika, and I was in white robes for about five years and during that whole time, you know, living in monasteries and some parts of the time not living in the monastery, now I'm not in the monastery, it gives me a platform from which to do this work of supporting people in finding their place to create a sustainable future, really. And, and finding our place inside the heart. How do we remain stable, strong, resilient, connected to what we take refuge in. So it's like during this process of of living as a nun, what I've noticed is kind of a subtle, ongoing purification. And and it's it's you don't have to be a nun or monk to do that. And and you're many of you probably experience this too. It's like the more we attend to keeping precepts, whether it's five or eight or ten or, (laughs) you know, the more we turn our attention to what's sacred and holy, even understanding what that means to us, it seems like there's, there's this, even if we don't really notice it day by day, you look back over the last few years or whatever time and you can kind of see this purification that's been happening. So it's, I think it's very, very important to recognize that, that that happens, that that is happening as part of the process of cultivating the, the practice. 
and it's inevitable. I really trust that. Um, and, and also, this idea of, of refuge. How, how many people here have formally taken the refuges? Mm -hmm. Do you do it periodically, or has it been a one-time? Periodically? We do Once. it here. We do it here three years. Every two or three years. It's something you can do at home if you want to. You can do it every day. What is it? Ah, oh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> what is she talking about? So, um, there's it, part of the very simple <laughs> kind of ceremony, ceremonial end of Theravada Buddhism is to take refuge, and I say all, all branches of Buddhism, you take <coughs> refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, and in the Sangha. The way that was first explained to me was it's really taking refuge. Taking refuge in the Buddha is not taking refuge in the historical figure of the Buddha necessarily, although we may have tremendous high regard, I know I do, for what he did and what he taught, uh, what, he, what he left for us, what he created for us. But actually... You know, Buddha means awakened mind. So we're taking our taking refuge in, um, recognizing that we can feel confident in the awakened mind, and then the Dhamma or Dharma is the truth of the way things are. It has many meanings, but it, one of the meanings is the truth truth of the way things are. So when I'm saying everything's falling apart. It's not something that just started happening. This is, <laughs> this is the nature of every object, of every thing in the world, of our own body. You, you know, we're born, and automatically that comes with a limited warranty. And I'm so appreciative of Burgett's sharing of visiting Amos, and if you've ever had time, any of us who have had time with someone who's nearing death, I mean, uh, that experience, of course, can have many faces. But to be able to be in contact with experience of peace in that, there's also a precious experience with a newborn that has a, a lot of similar qualities in my, from what I experience. There's something there that connects us to what's beyond this life, and it's a beautiful connection with a hopeful or bright um, knowing, or it can be. So, you know, just one, one truth, one part of the Dhamma is to know that what's in this world, this world, what's in this world, what we experience, what we um, happen to be residing in at the moment, or maybe that's not quite the right way to put it, but we have our body, 
body-mind, it's impermanent. That's one of the truths. But the truth of the way things are is Dhamma. And then the Sangha being uh, representing not just the beings that have cultivated and realized a certain level of awakening, but also the purity. So the awakened mind, the truth of the way things are, and the purity of, of pure life. And so it, it, I think this, these are my words or word and words that I've heard from my teachers. And I think it's important for each of us to find our own way of connecting with what doesn't change. And that's what we can take refuge in, what doesn't change. If we take refuge in our bank account, if we take refuge in our health insurance, if we take refuge in our partners, our families, you know, that changes. No matter how wonderful they are, it's not something we can really rely on. So to really investigate, where, what do I experience as what does not change? How do I connect to that? Similar to Burgett's sharing about what she experienced seeing Amos. I remember my teacher, Ajahn Pasano, I don't know if any of you know him. He's the abbot at a Baigiri Buddhist monastery near Ukiah in Redwood Valley, California. One of the neighbors at a Baigiri was a lady who would come to the monastery. She lived there long before the monastery came, but she was a, a regular participant at the monastery and she did some local theater she was in a play and she became ill and she couldn't finish the the run of the play it just kind of suddenly came on and she had some tests went to found out she was just completely full of cancer and she had a very short time still to live and so my teacher went to see her in the hospital and she said, you know, I, I know I'm going to die and I, I know I may not be able to go home again, but I'm just so grateful. I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful for this connection with the dumb. I mean, she was just bright. And when he told this story and he said, you know, most of us, we think, we know what we're going to do tomorrow. We have some idea, you know, this day and the next day and next week. We've got our calendars and we think we know what's going on. And, and, um, and my teacher said, but we don't. We're so far from knowing. We don't know. <laughs> and yet when he talked about the way she was moving through this process that came on so quickly and this, you know, everything she was doing, it was just, what does it mean now, you know? And I thought, I want that. <laughs> I want to go through something like, if I have to go through something like that, I want to go like that. <laughs> and, and how does that happen? And, and I think it happens by really giving ourselves to a refuge that's solid and, and keeping precepts and... and um, and that means doing the things that help to stabilize the heart, not doing the things that make the heart unstable. 
So one of the kinds of things, if you look at the five precepts, don't kill anything. Don't take what's not given. The translation usually re refrain from taking what is not given. Refrain from sexual misconduct. Refrain from false and harmful speech. Refrain from using drugs or alcohol. And you know, instead of being moralizing about that, to just recognize that those things, if we do those things, it, it destabilizes the heart. If we keep those precepts, it stabilizes the heart. And the more we do that, or we, we really, and one of the things I love about being a nun is finding um, the supports in it, like confession. I mean, that word might bring up um, <laughs> things for you that may not seem that helpful. <laughs> in my experience, to be able to notice where I haven't been able to keep the precepts the way I would like, then I can tell a sister this, and she can say, do you see the the error there, do you see where that was slipping? And I can say, yes, I see it. I see what I did there. Will, will you endeavor to do better in the future? And it's like, yes, I will endeavor to do better. Even if next time I have to say, you know, <laughs> it happened again, it's still, you know, to, to bring that kind of awareness, even to the fact that I'm keeping track of the little things that aren't really quite the way I'd like them to be. Um, to be able to say that, to be able to know that I'm earnestly doing the best I can to follow this path of purity, then there's a lightness that comes. There's a stabilization of the heart. You can set that one aside. I got a little anger. I got kind of impatient. I said something I shouldn't have said. Or, yeah, when that person asked me if I liked something, I said, yes, but really it wasn't quite the truth. <laughs> that kind of thing, and we all kind of can get caught in that kind of thing. And, and then we can practice saying, well, no, wait a minute, that's not quite it. Can sort of set that straight. But this ongoing kind of development of purity that we can take up as part of the practice this really helps. We can develop a stability. So to answer your question, there's a there's a standard formula for what they call taking the precepts, where you can repeat the precepts, and also at the same time, generally, there's a standard formula for taking refuge. And you've probably heard it. It goes like, Buddhang Sarang. Gachami, Damang Saranang Gachami. Is that right? Yeah. So, so, and then a second time and a third time. And, and what's amazing about it, I had a friend who's been a Buddhist for a really long time before I even officially became a Buddhist. She said that she took the five precepts and then she decided she was going to repeat those every morning when she would do her meditation, and she said it absolutely changed her life. Absolutely changed her life. 
So in the monastic life, I repeat the refuges and take the precepts every two weeks about every full moon and new moon. Right now I'm living outside the monastery. I do this with one of my elder sisters over Skype. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's very, very helpful. And you don't necessarily need to do that with someone. You can do it on your own. And it's a wonderful reminder, you know, to remember, yes, my intention is to not harm any being today. And my intention is to not take anything that isn't offered and given to me. And my intention is to not harm in any way, not to stir up, not to distract anybody with sexuality where that's not appropriate, and not to say anything harsh or say anything untrue or even frivolous. And to not take in intoxicants and dull my mind in that way and then follow through and one of the things that I know I've been plagued with that's been a huge part of this purification process not that it's over let me tell you <laughs> but has been guilt you know when you start to wake up a little bit and you start to see how unskillful my the behaviors have been in the past, there's this very natural process of guilt. Well, I'm, no, that's not right. <laughs> there's this very natural process of going, <gasps> it's more like um, hiriotapa. You, you have a, that's a poly, you have a, a, a concern for, for doing the right thing and a shame for doing the wrong thing. Guilt is not the natural thing. Guilt is considered to be pretty unproductive, really. And so when, you know, time in the monastery, especially during this one winter retreat, I just had all this, these, oh, and then I remember doing, oh, man, I did that. And it was so unskillful. And just having that kind of... And I went this, it was with this lovely abbot, and uh, he was very had a very open door for people to come in during the winter retreat because you're spending three months, you know, in relative silence and doing a lot of practice, and you may need to talk with somebody. <laughs> and so I went in and I, um, I said, you know, I just have so many regrets, and you know, he said, well. You probably haven't done anything that bad. Mm -hmm. And um, and then he told me the story of, you know, I mean, he reminded, talked about Angulimala, who's the mass murderer at the time of the Buddha. You know, he killed 999 people before he got enlightened. It's not a path to enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Meeting the Buddha. And he said to me, just think of how big Angulimala's heart needed to become to embrace all that. Wow. Yeah. I needed to work or allow the heart to grow more, to accept 
what I've done and, and to accept what other people have done and you know and and to realize that wow that was what was really needed some development of the boundless heart of kindness and compassion and so taking refuge taking precepts I think that's a very 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 beautiful fundamental life-changing practice that we can all do and I have this little few words in my pocket here I was given a calendar you know one of these um, calendar the brush dance calendar Tiknahan and uh, one of the months this is what's written on the calendar Peace is all around us, in the world and in nature and within us, in our bodies and our spirits. Once we learn to touch this peace, we will be healed and transformed. It's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of practice. And of course, faith is important. It's an important ingredient in our development on the path. It's very helpful. But this, this beautiful teaching of the Buddha that says that we can choose to practice what's wholesome and healthy and helps us develop and stabilizes the heart and gives us a refuge that's solid and secure, that we can choose to continue to come back to that and touch it depend upon it and find out how we personally experience that how we would characterize it or cast it how we can know it for being there and how we can bring ourselves back to it again and again now of course what comes into my mind is maybe a question that might come up in the heart that says but there really are things to worry about. There really is a lot that's very, very painful. And there's a grief that's so deep, I don't think I can hold it. And of course, turning towards it is always the answer. Turning towards it seeing it, observing it, recognizing where we feel it in the body, being present with it, but not being in it, that being with it and not being in it. It's a key shift, right? It's the shift to mindfulness. The practice of mindfulness of breathing, the practice of mindfulness and, and concentration really gives us what we need to be able to be with all the stuff that's really difficult to be with. And then when we are, as we become skillful with that, we find it transformed right there. Right there. Right there we can experience what the Buddha talked about, about knowing the suffering, 
recognizing its root, its cause, and its experiencing its cessation right there. And of course the path leading to its cessation is, is what continues to help us more and more gain more and more skill. So I want to offer that for reflection. And I'm happy for any questions you might have for me. And I want to really offer a blessing for your practice and a blessing for this time we're living in where we have this opportunity, this, this rare and precious opportunity to know the Dhamma and to be here for each other. We um, talked about the precepts, and I was thinking just driving here tonight that the only hope that we really have, or the only uh, the answer, as as I see it, to all that's going on in the world, all the tragedy and all the the. Um, deception, etc., etc., is for every single one of us to be absolutely and totally ethical (laughs) and live with integrity, which would be following the the precepts. I don't see any other way. It has to be every single individual living an absolutely ethical life. You know, um, I support so many organizations, but that doesn't do it. I mean, helps, you know, <laughs> but, um, and it's, it's actually why Gil came to be a teacher, because he he determined that that following this path was was the way, the the best way. Question: um, You know who Kevin Griffin is? No, you know who he is. <laughs> uh, Kevin Griffith. He's a the. Um, is he a lay teacher at, mm-hmm. at Spirit Rock? Yeah. And, he's um, a community guy. Okay, that's what he is. But he's also written a few books, and um, and one of his books, he talks about um, his, he was, he's a recovered alcoholic, and he found Buddhism before he found recovery, and he was living in this delusion that, like one of his, one of his teachers had said once that, um, Whatever is is what what is what is you know and so um, that's how it should be that's the nature of things and so he in his drunken distorted mind took that to mean I'm I'm me being drunk is just is just what it is mm-hmm. and so he kept like talks about in his book how he was a drunken Buddha mm-hmm. uh, like he was like a, a lustful Buddha and it was just that's what he you know that's mm-hmm. how he distorted that and 
then he talks about how in like an Asian cult, like how could that be if he was going to all these like three month meditation retreats and like how could he be in such delusion about his problem? And he talked that, you know, in Asian cultures, the monks and the monasteries are they're like they are sort of like counselors to the community as well. Like they can kind of call you out on your stuff. <laughs> And that that's sort of the difference in what how it's evolved in Western culture is that there's less of that sort of having a person to touch base with individually um, on a regular basis. And so um, some of those feelings of, you know, like grief or things that we regret, like we end up just carrying around and not having a way if, if this is the path you've chosen. You know, and I, I know like in other religions, I grew up Christian and there were, you know, you would have counsel with your minister. So I'm just wondering like if you have thoughts on, you know, how, how this has come or why, if it's helpful or not helpful to not really have like this sort of check-in that other, it seems like is prevalent in other religions and even in Buddhism and other cultures. That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I haven't been without that. And I don't think we should be without that. I think we need that. And actually, um, it's one of the things that I offer. I mean, it's like, this is, this just seems like a completely natural part of what I do as a nun. You know, people can come and talk. And, you know, it's, it's like, this is what you need as part of the, the teaching of the Dhamma to be able to come and talk. And yes, you know, that I come out of the tradition that uh, is Ajahn Chah in Thailand and Ajahn Sumedho and the, the teachers I have or his students, many of them lived with him. And I mean, you know, the stories about Ajahn Chah is people come and, and in the, in that context, people come they don't have a one-on-one -on -one private talk, but they come with everything right there in the monastery. And whenever anyone would come, he was there. He would come out. You know, it wasn't like, oh, it's, it's after four. <laughs> so, so the model that I really grew up with in, in monastic life, in the Dhamma, in, the, in Buddhist monasticism, is this availability as, as someone who's taken up this responsibility. And so I believe that that should be there. And I, and I think it's good to encourage it for it to be there. And I think it's good to encourage this to be there without a fee. That it should be, Dhamma should be offered on a donation basis. And so it's like I would encourage people to find a teacher or find someone that they trust, that they feel comfortable talking to. I know I grew up in a Christian context too, and I've, heard people in my family say, if I have a problem, the last person I'm going to is the minister. <laughs> well, you know, that suggests to me that that just wasn't a working relationship for them. And maybe it's good to find someone who it is a working relationship with and, and make use of it. Because I think it's very important to have somebody to call us on our stuff. And to say, look, precepts are important. Or, you know, I mean, maybe that's not the opportunity. And just, you know, how, how do we find, um, you know, people in our life who are going to really be honest with us. 
So that's one of the beauties of living in community. If you live with people, you know, whether it is like living in a monastic community or now I live in a community with, I'm the only monastic, they're lay people, but they're people who, you know, we care about each other and we keep track of each other, you know, and we have, I feel like, have a, a very open relationship in terms of supporting each other and in being strong and clear and ethical and connected to the Dhamma, even though not everybody in the community is Buddhist. That's not really an issue for me. But the heart, what we're doing with the heart and what we're doing with our actions and our, you know, how we live our lives and how we care about people, this, this is really what's important. And what we call it, or what spiritual context we we find the expression of it in, fine. <laughs> well, it was what it was one thing that came in my mind when Forget was saying it too, that even though to talk about that, you know, is important, and to really have not just the intention, but, you know, really follow through on that is important. And to know that it hasn't happened so far in human history, and I don't think it's about to happen now. And it really struck me when I was, I, I went last year on, at Waysak in 2010. I was in Thailand at, and Bangkok at the Waysak celebration, and heard lots of people speaking and the um, and the um, the conference was was really addressing some of the world issues and I heard monk after monk talk about how the problem is greed and we've got to get people to stop being greedy and we just got to stop being greedy and I thought Okay, that message has been coming from spiritual teachers forever. What is different about that message now or different about the way it's being delivered that's going to make a difference now? Is that going to really change things? And so, it's okay. <laughs> so, so the conclusion I, I came to is it's true that we're still going to have greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not going to, you know, just go away because now we feel threatened. Um, however, for everybody who can, which I would include all of you, because you wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night if you didn't have something going on spiritually, everybody who can, I think, needs to really make what Forget was saying such a clear commitment in our hearts, and then to recognize that even though this that when we do that we have a huge impact on our world. I really believe that. And we even don't even know how much, right, when we hold that firm. And yet we're going to be coming across over and over again greed, hatred, and delusion in all of its forms. 
and we have such a great opportunity to work with what comes up for us. We have such a great opportunity to use that as a way to continue to purify ourselves because when we can see that and we can go, yep, it's not like I'm going to stand by idly. It's not like I'm going to take up this idea that, oh, well, that's the way it is. And, you know, not that, but yes, I see that's the way it is. That's what happens in human life. And I can purify my side. I can really be present with the feelings I'm experiencing. I can use this as a lever. I can recognize this suffering. I can be present with this in a way that I can transform that in myself. And as I develop that skill, I become more and more solid, more and more unshakable until unshakability is the norm. And then, you know what? It doesn't matter in the end. In some sense, you've got something that no one can take away, that no falling apart condition can erode. So one way of looking at what's happening now is that we've got, you know, the Buddha used that. He said suffering, stress, problems, this is the way, this is the door, this is the gate into awakening. This is the lever. We got a huge lever. <laughs> Biggest one humankind has ever seen to catapult us into awakening. <laughs> and so we've got to use it. I think we can really use it. And in the process, we can help so many people. We can do so much more to bring light into the world. Um, and it's happening everywhere. And it's not all under the name of Buddhism. But if you read something like Blessed Unrest, if you look at any kind of, you know, there are so many grassroots level movements to help us redefine ourselves as a culture, as a civilization. And how's it all going to turn out? Well, we have the chance to wake up. So we just go with that. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so let's just, maybe just as a way to end, so I think we just have a little ending. Just close your eyes and connect in your heart. And let's dedicate this time and this reflection to the benefit of all beings. And may our practice be for that benefit, the benefit of all beings. We share the blessings of our lives with goodwill and peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.